Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Entrepreneurs in Small Rooms Drinking Coffee. I'm Rob Kennedy, and we're here today with Michael, Head of Business Development for the TSX. How are you? I am doing great. Thank you. Good. Thanks for coming in so early. So Here's the coffee. Yeah, exactly. Um, what? Uh, so I think everyone knows in Canada and beyond what the TSX is. What does the Head of Business Development do for the TSX? Yeah, I've got a really neat job. So yeah, I hope everyone does know what Toronto Stock Exchange is. Uh, on the off chance that some of your listeners aren't from Canada, uh, Toronto Stock Exchange is the Stock Exchange of Canada. It's actually one of the largest stock exchanges in the world. That's something Canadians don't know. Hmm. Uh, more capital is raised on our exchange than on the London Stock Exchange, the right. Tokyo Exchange, the Deutsche Börse in Germany. We're actually one of the biggest exchanges in the world. What does the head of business development do for them? Well, I run our tech sector, which puts me in a really interesting position of, in simple form, setting the strategy and setting the overall direction for us trying to attract tech companies to go public. But the reason it's really interesting is because I do this actually for two different exchanges that we run. Mm -hmm. We run Toronto Stock Exchange, which I just talked about, but we also run this exchange for super small cap companies called TSX Venture Exchange, and I'm responsible for that as well. Mm -hmm. And so what it allows is for me to look at companies from the absolute earliest stages, startups, right the way through to unicorns, if we're talking in tech language here. Uh, and so truly my job encompasses that full spectrum of seeing the tech ecosystem in Canada, helping those companies understand their funding options, and ultimately trying to guide them towards the public market if it's the right path for them. Thank you, and, and thank you for not bearing the lead here, because uh, if you listen to the show, we, we typically talk to uh, entrepreneurs, and we talk to investors. And so you might be like, why would the head of business development of the TSX come uh, come on the show? And aside from the obvious, like when you go public, that is a natural end state for a lot of startups, but the, the TSX venture stuff, uh, is something that I think a lot of people, like, we're going to get into that. Yeah. Uh, I think that's pretty cool. Um, so taking a step back, how do you how do you get into this role? Are you, like, studying finance all your life, and then you ran startups, and then all of a sudden you're like, hey, look, there's a thing? Or Yeah, well, almost. <laughs> um, certainly studying finance all my life. In, in some respects, my career is very, very simple and straightforward. I did the business school thing at Queen's University, and then right out of business school, went into a career in investment banking mm -hmm. and spent 16 years in investment banking, uh, 15 and a half of those at one firm, which is in pretty Canada. remarkable. In Canada, mm -hmm. but in, in all cases working for a global firm in Canada, mm -hmm. as a 15 and a half of them at one in particular. And that whole career gives me a perspective on funding and how companies um, consider their key decisions around exits and M&A and, and mergers and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And for all that time, I was advising boards and advising management teams. That career ended in late 2012 at exactly the same time that Toronto Stock Exchange was looking to hire a former investment banker to lead the group that I'm responsible for. And hmm. so in a matter of just wonderful luck and, and good timing and everything else, just as one career ended, this other one opened up. And the jobs are different in many respects, but also very similar in some, mm -hmm. in that I'm drawing on this experience that I've got in terms of how to advise companies and how to help companies think about their funding options. It's just that now I'm doing it purely with tech, whereas in my prior career, it was covering a full range of sectors. And I'm getting to do this for, as I said earlier, small companies and big companies, whereas my prior career was mostly big. Did the, did the venture exchange exist when you... It did. Yeah, it venture did. exchanges existed for... I think over a hundred years. Oh, really? So yes, it existed. Okay, um, it existed in various predecessor forms and so on. But in my life, it actually 
never came across my radar screen, yes. which is something that I think a lot of people encounter. Yes. It's a separate world. I had and to, I, I basically, I, I, by coincidence, I talked to a company that went public yeah. uh, two weeks before we, we sat down for a coffee. And then when we went down to a coffee, you explained it. I'm like, oh, this is such a big thing. And how did you not, like, how could you have missed it? It's so obvious and large. Except a lot of people have missed it. Yeah. And it's yeah. very common that people don't know about it. And like I said, in, in my whole life in this industry, I never really focused on it mm -hmm. until I joined the exchange and realized how immensely powerful this thing can be, but how unknown it is to a lot of people. And it's complicated and it's different and it's hard for people to wrap their heads around. But once they do, they kind of go, wow, this is really neat. And tech companies, once they wrap their head around it, are quite intrigued by it. Once you, once you just out of curiosity, if you go public on the venture exchange, do you, is that the place you're public? Can you migrate to yeah. the old-fashioned exchange? Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure you can. And that's part of the whole that's the an, trick. If you do another raise, you basically do it that way? Is that yeah, I mean, the, we think of it as a graduated system. You've got this lower tier exchange, which is for smaller companies. It's not for bad companies. When I say lower tier, I mean purely by size. Yeah, It's for smaller companies. And, and what, what kind of company would, it, like if I'm starting a company today and I call up Nick and I'm like, let's do an app, yeah. <laughs> would I go public on the venture exchange? Uh, Potentially. Is so, that too small? Possibly. But, <laughs> uh, so the smaller exchange, the profile of companies going there is more or less Series A, Series B mm -hmm. stage. Mm -hmm. So the company has got revenues or at least a very clear imminent plan for revenues. In other words, you know, you're well beyond just the business plan on the napkin. Mm -hmm. So let's say you've got revenues, but early revenues. Let's say you've raised a bit of money, but it may only have been a million or two bucks to kind of get you to where you are at this stage. And you need two or three million dollars. As a founder, your options are angels and VCs or bootstrapping or venture debt if your business can handle that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And what we say is you should also add to that list of options public venture capital. But really think of it as venture capital just funded from a different angle mm -hmm. rather than it coming from a single fund. Right. It comes from a group of hundred or hundreds of individual investors or family funds or family offices or small cap asset managers. Can right. anyone invest? Can like yeah. any any like anyone. anyone who can invest in the stock exchange can invest in a Absolutely. And yeah. the stock is traded and you can check it out on Google Finance or Yahoo Finance or whatever it is, see the stock price, it moves up and down every day just like any other stock moves up and down. So, you know, one of the things a lot of uh, entrepreneurs do is when they look for money, um, they're not just looking for money straight up. They're looking for uh, some someone to go along with it who yeah. can help shepherd them to the next stage. So if you're looking for a Series A, maybe more so, less so maybe for a Series B, um, are you are you foregoing that expertise by going public? Because you're not going to get any, no one shareholder is really, not probably, yeah. going to be giving you the kind of uh, connections you need to get to the next yeah. one. Yeah, so I mean, that's that's the great value that the VC model brings, right. right? The VC model brings that one or two individuals who are strong voices on your board, strong voices in terms of guiding the company. Mm -hmm. And a lot of founders need that. And a lot of founders want that and are willing to give up what the VCs are asking for. And is sense. it usually more fundamentally in terms it, of, is it cost more to get that money? Uh, to get the VC money, it yeah. may not necessarily cost more in dilution, yes. as in I'm trying to raise 5 million bucks and the valuation is going to be 15, just to pick yeah. numbers. Yeah. That may not be any different whether you went to the public venture path or whether you went to your favorite VC down the road. Mm -hmm. 
the difference probably comes in the terms of beyond the economics. And so what I mean by that is, what does the venture fund want? They probably want to, or let's say two seats on a board, depending on how their deal is set up. Uh, they're probably not offering you common shares. You're probably taking breaths. There's probably a series of conditions, ROFOs, ratchets, um, a variety of other liquidity preferences, let's say, which are very normal and which the VC community justifies on the basis of the fact that they're bringing more than just cash to the table, for sure. And what about what about something like, you know, VCs expect a certain kind of exit? Yeah. Uh, whereas if you go public, you, you that is an that exit. That is your exit, yeah. In, so, in a sense, but it's like the expectations are different, are they not? They are. So the VC model certainly works on a time frame, whether it's five or ten years or something in between there, where an exit has to happen. Liquidity has to happen. At a certain minimum amount in their minds usually, right? Yeah, for the whole... 10x, because that's the whole point. The whole point depends on that. And so that drives a great industry, but it drives certain activities and certain actions on behalf of the VC Mm -hmm. that some founders love, and that's how some of the greatest companies in this country have been built. But some other founders look at that and go, that just doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. That somehow is running at cross purposes with my objectives, or it's putting too much power in the hands of some individuals who maybe have a different horizon from me or a different plan from me. And so we're never, we never say to founders, this is right, this is wrong. Right. There, there's no such thing. <laughs> right. But for you, this might be right or wrong. For your preferences, this might be more painful or less painful. So back to your question of, well, if the company takes the public venture path, what are they getting? Well, they're not getting that deep mentorship, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can get some Directly. Of it. Directly. I mean, they'd have, they have to go about and create an advisory board exactly. or so, other ways to get there. Uh, that's exactly it. So you have to have a board of directors if you're a public company. Yeah. And so invariably, you're going to have that kind of guidance there. But it's going to be different, right? Their interests of that board of directors will be different from that of the VC. So you're not getting that kind of guidance. But you're also not getting some of those terms that some founders don't like, the liquidity preferences and all those different things. So it's a trade-off for sure, but some companies just look at those options and say, for my personal taste or for my personal circumstances, path A or path B is the only one that makes sense. Does it, does it um, once you get into that position where you, you've, you're listed, are there, uh, like you said, uh, some companies going to be like, we're about to hit revenue, so that's a time to perhaps do this. Yeah. Um, uh, at least when you're a regu- old-fashioned publicly traded company, there are quarterly expectations yeah. about what you do. Yeah. Uh, that early of a startup, depending on the kind of company and depending on its business model, mm-hmm. may not have that kind of predictable revenue. For sure. Predict- so are, are investors... And given that Rob or Nick or whatever could just go and invest in these things, we're not necessarily savvy enough to understand that. Um, What what are the expectations that are put on the companies? So you've got the basic requirements that you alluded to, Rob, of having to put out quarterly financial statements and so on. So that doesn't change. Mm -hmm. I think if you're an early stage company, investors know that you're going to go through ups and downs. Mm -hmm. That's just the, the buyer beware concept. That right. Investors know that if you're investing in a pre-revenue or early revenue business, it's wildly different than if you're investing in someone that's you know well-established as a you know, multi-billion dollar company, let's say. You're still not given a free pass, though. It's just a different mindset. Um, I'll do the contrast again between VCs and 
the public venture model that we're talking about here. The VCs know that there's going to be a path to growth here that's going to involve some speed bumps and twists and turns because that's just the way the model works for any startup. And they're patient, but they're patient to a point, and there's a point at which they'll lose patience. I'd say that the public investor model isn't too different. They're patient. They want to see growth. Their hope is that a business that has $2 million in revenue this year will have $5 million next year and $10 million the year after. And if it does, boy, that's a great scenario. And if it doesn't, they'll give you maybe a bit of a pass for a little while. But invariably, much like the VC investor, there's a point at which there's a loss of faith or time to move on. What I think is interesting, and, and this doesn't happen in every case, but there are certainly some companies that have needed, let's say, that 20 years growth, that 20 year overnight success that mm-hmm, we hear mm-hmm. about, right? And I don't think that the traditional VC model is conducive to that. 20 years is far too long for that VC fund model to actually right. work. But interestingly, the public venture model can actually work in that way. It doesn't always, for sure. But there was an example of a company out of Vancouver that some of you may know about called TO Networks. Um, they're a fintech company that started in the late 90s. It was 1999 or something like that. The company was founded. Right before the dot-com bust. <laughs> right before the dot-com bust. Yeah. And from, I'll get my years wrong here a little bit, from basically the day of their founding in late 99 or 1999 or whatever it was, through till the mid 2000s. So for several years, that business grew, but didn't grow in a massive trajectory. They were kind of finding their way and and pivoting their model a little bit this way and a little bit that way. And their business grew from a million of revenues to a couple million to maybe three or four million. Growing, but admittedly at a very small clip. This is a company that went public in 1999. And so right from day one, effectively, they were funding their business through the public markets and relying on that patient or more patient investor to allow them to evolve as they pivoted. Finally, in the later 2000s, they kind of got traction in what they were doing. And the business then started to really take off. And it was, I guess it was announced about a month ago that PayPal is acquiring them for $300 million. So by the time that deal wraps up, assuming everything goes as the regulators and companies and all plan, you know, this will be a business that ultimately has just south, I think, of 100 million in revenues, which is a pretty impressive number to get to, but it got there through a very careful, slow path with the support of some very patient investors in the public market who along the way allowed them to raise fives of millions, tens of millions in different increments to get them to that stage. Hmm. So can you think about that model in the VC world? I just don't think the VC world could tolerate 20 years. Right. It just doesn't work. Right. It doesn't mean that's not a good company. It just means it's not a good company for the traditional VC model. Right. And and what happens... Like on quarterly calls, do I mean, you know, you obviously financial statements. I'm yeah. assuming the CEO or the board or somebody gets on the call and yeah. with CFO and goes through. They talk the, about how, how do you set expectations? And are there analysts that come on the call like yeah, on a traditional? Yeah. There are. So in, in many ways, this isn't different from Snapchat or from Facebook or from Shopify. There are analysts covering these stocks. There's the quarterly calls where. People can answer or ask and answer questions. For small companies, there's not many analysts covering them. You may have one or two analysts if your business is worth 50 million bucks or so. Mm -hmm. But that's still some analysts covering and providing profile. And those quarterly calls for those small companies, they're pretty short. It might just be the CEO or CFO 
reading through the key financial highlights of the quarter, talking about some of the key strategic goals for the next quarter and leaving it at that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the calls will last 10 minutes, sometimes they'll last an hour, mm -hmm. but they're part of the process. Uh, you don't need to provide guidance, which is a helpful thing that some folks assume, oh my gosh, I've got to give my next quarter's guidance right. and stick to everything to the penny. No, you don't. Okay. Um, you can provide broad metrics or broad goals or broad targets, but you don't have to put a specific number out there, which I think makes a lot of CEOs feel a little bit better that they're not kind of stressed do you think? That. Do you think that like, you mentioned Snap, and I'll get back to that in a second, because yeah. it's relatively timely, depending on when you listen to the show. Uh, but uh, one of the things I was always thinking is like, you know, could you fund or build a company? I feel like the answer is no. I feel like the answer is no for Canada generally, but could you build a company like a Facebook or a Twitter on the on the public exchange where you're like, dude, I've got, look at my user growth. I have no idea what my business yeah. model is. Stay tuned for another quarter, half year, six, whatever. And and, and it takes, uh, takes a while because you need to acquire a huge amount of eyeballs to become a business that's viable. Could you do it in the public market or is that more a venture-backed thing? It seemed to have been historically more of a venture-backed thing in the right. U.S. as well. Well, I was going to say, I don't even know if Canada is the place yet no. to build that kind of company, even in the venture land. Uh, correct. And I think even in... Actually, anywhere in, the, in America, except for San Francisco, that's what you yeah, can say? Yeah, yeah, yeah pretty <laughs> much. Um, yeah. If you look at the U.S., you know, Snap went public uh, last week mm -hmm. through, obviously, lots of venture funding to get them there. I don't think that business could have gone public three years ago. It, at that point, had lots of users, but clearly didn't have some of the scale that it has today. Uh, and I don't, so I, I'm not sure that that's necessarily a different answer, Canada versus U.S. Right. Uh, at all. It's just the nature of the business. But, but so actually, so since you brought up Snap again, let's talk yeah. about that, because yeah. if you if you recall, uh, in their filing, they're like, oh, by the way, we might not be able to make money at all. Yeah. Asterisk. Yeah. Which I don't think I've ever seen in a filing before. Yeah. Maybe like it'll take a long time or whatever, but they actually straight up were like, we just might not make money. Mm -hmm. Um what I find interesting about that is that if you look at the startup um, sort of narrative in the States, especially, a lot of companies aren't going public. Uber's choosing to not go public. Airbnb is choosing to not go public for extended periods of time. Uh, and then you have a company like Snap come along and say, man, we might not make money. Give us money anyway. Sure. Um, does that influence anything that's happening here and what you guys are up to? Like, uh, A, are you finding that Canadian startups are unwilling to go public because the hip, cool ones in the States aren't? And then B, um, the, the fact that SNAP is basically declared the un, un, it's not necessary to go public, does that affect anyone who's thinking about going public, you think, on the TSX or on the venture exchange? Yeah, it impacts TSX much more. So the okay. main board, it does. So if you look at the kind of companies we're talking to that we hope will go public at some point on TSX, these are typically the big venture-backed companies. Mm -hmm. The VCs have already... Uh, added the value that they, they like to add. They've got their teeth deep into those companies. And these companies are now building. We all know the names. They're building to unicorn or beyond status, and they're doing really well. Mm -hmm. But the bar is very high. Look at the tech companies that have gone public successfully in Canada on TSX. Not on TSX Venture, but mm -hmm. the big cap ones. Companies like Shopify, companies like Canaxis, and a few of the other bigger names that we know about. Mm -hmm. They've done really well. Mm -hmm. They have grown to billion dollar companies in the case of, you know, Canaxis, their stock has quintupled in the span of two or two and a half years since their IPO. In the mm -hmm. case of Shopify, we've all followed their success. I think mm -hmm. they're now a seven or eight billion dollar company from an IPO just a couple years ago. So the bar has been set very high. And for companies that are looking to list on TSX, 
you don't necessarily need to be a massive company. $250 million in market value is perfectly fine. But what you need is to have a lot of the key metrics in place related to IPO readiness. And no point to going into all the details on that now, mm -hmm. but it amounts to having predictability of growth, clarity on growth, and some of these other key things. So when we look at that list of potentially hot IPO candidates in Canada, every one of them, I believe, is checking through their lists of are we ready to meet that high bar? And that test is, as I said, a series of financial and non-financial metrics that are going to take time for these companies to get their heads around. Uh, neat thing is we get a pretty cool inside view on what they're doing because we're talking to all or most of those companies. And that's what I was going to say, like, uh, we sort of started with this and sort of pause it and coming back to it. That's yeah. kind of what you, one of the things you help companies do, it, which it is, is like figure out, okay, well, we want to go public. What do we need to do? Yeah. And this is where you partner with him to get them to cross the line. Absolutely. So we'll work with the management teams. We'll work with their boards of directors. We'll work with their investors guiding them along that path. We're not the only people helping them. They've got great lawyers, great accountants, great inv investment bankers also helping them. But in many cases, they want the exchange's perspective on what's it going to take to be right. Before. We've <laughs> seen it you know, you know a few times. Yeah. Um, that's the thing that a lot of people don't understand, right? Or, or maybe forget. If you're taking your company public, you're probably doing that for the first and maybe only time in your career. Mm -hmm. We do this every single day. Right. And in the case of me and my colleagues, we've done this for 20 years of our lives, every single day. Mm -hmm. And so we're kind of lucky that we know what some of the t pitfalls are and some of the challenges that people face. We just are lucky that we deal with this all the time so we can help you and make it work. Is there, is there uh, I'm going to go back to the question you talked about before, but is there a, are there patterns where you see people come to you and they're like, we're ready. And you're like, no, you're not. Uh, not not because you know what's going to happen when they go public, but just like, dude, you you don't have you know there are these check boxes you have to check off. You don't have consistent growth quarter over quarter for the last two years or whatever yeah. the, whatever it is. Is, is there a, a common pattern where people think they're ready but they're not actually ready, and you have to kind of say come back again? There are, or is it all over the place? It's it's it is all over the place. For the bigger companies, the ones that are eyeing TSX, mm -hmm. typically the pitfalls, if you will, that they're trying to address are the move from hyper hyper growth which a lot of them have had in the first three to five years of their lives to lower growth but visibility on profits and so that transition takes a little bit of work mm -hmm. and uh, does it re does it involve shuffling the management team often because it's a different group of humans who know how to do one yeah in some instances that you need to bring in an outside cfo for example mm -hmm. someone who is a true corporate cfo not not necessarily um, the sort of stereotypical accountant type, but rather just a good corporate CFO who's different possibly from a startup CFO, who's got different skills and different uh, uh, things that they can bring to the table. Uh, there's also a need often for uh, you know different leadership around some key functions. Maybe you need to transition your sales model a little bit, maybe whatever it is. So those are kind of some of the things that you have for the bigger companies. Um, there's also boring but really important stuff around financials and yeah. you know it's the sort of stuff that people will you know turn off the podcast for if we so go like into good hygiene, detail basically but it's good, good hygiene. hygiene yeah and yeah. it's it's necessary interestingly it's necessary for any company vc backed or otherwise but you know some of that isn't always as ready as it should be so right. that's got to be done it's funny for the smaller companies that come to us around listing on venture exchange the most common issue is they're just delusional in terms of how that market actually works oh it's, wow okay it, and what i mean there is it's not 
you don't just go to TSX Venture Exchange with an idea. You need a business. Yes. And there needs to be a clear congruence between the sort of valuation that you're looking for and the capital that you're trying to raise and what you've currently got. Right. If you watch Shark Tank or you watch Dragon's Den, you see some of these people who come on who it's the how show... Much the company's worth and it's like $10 million yeah, and you're like, exactly. you're selling hats. Well, that's it. And the show does a great job of editing things and sure to make <laughs> certain presenters seem kind of stupid when yes. they may not actually be stupid. But there are absolutely people that approach us who feel like they've just failed from that show and are trying their idea out on us as well. And it's the same answer that you can't raise a billion dollars to build a pilot plant. Right. Yeah, or something extreme like that. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and believe it or not, I do get a call like that every so often about some sort of industrial technology company that's trying to build a new piece of hardware or a new something. And they just, in quotes, need a billion dollars to raise a plant who or to build a plant. A yeah, who doesn't need a billion? So what we find ourselves having to do with those companies is a real education around how this public venture market works and kind of say, could you raise a billion dollars from the VC for your idea? No, but then it's not really different from us. So just uh, humor me for a second. I know you mentioned it before, but one more time for the on the venture exchange side, what is sort of the ideal startup to you? If a startup that met the certain criteria, yeah. uh, you'd be like, yes, just you're, you've got it together. Is it like looking for series A or B? Yes. Um, what are the few other so, things on your checklist when you're like you? Lo looking for series A or B, in a perfect world, I love to see that they've got revenues already. Mm -hmm. So uh, gosh, if you've got 5 million in revenues already, I'm feeling really good because there's clearly some customer traction here. There's How uh, uh, regular does that revenue have to be? Um, the the SaaS model is loved, yes. occurring, predictable, sure. that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, lumpy revenue, we can handle, not we, the investors can handle, but it's got to be looked at much more closely. So if that $5 million in revenue came from one contract last year that may not get renewed this year, I'm not sure that that's actually a sustainable business as much as it is a really neat something that someone gravitated to one time. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I'd prefer to see $5 million in recurring revenue or predictable revenue, uh, good top-line growth, which can be... 20 to 100%. That's a big range, admittedly, but clearly some visible top line growth. Looking to raise two to $10 million would be great, very practical size. Mm -hmm. And then there's the softer things, which every VC is looking for as well. Good market opportunity, good barriers to entry, good management team. That kind of series of checkboxes isn't different for anyone, uh, whether you're public or private funders funders rather it's still folks looking for the same kind of things so do you ha how do you um how do you like with an venture capitalist or an angel investor they say i just won't write you the check i don't like the cut of your jib yeah that's great doesn't make sense to me how do you say no we're not actually going to list you because you're not actually putting your own yeah. money in yeah exactly so there's you know we we approve the company based on the sort of regulatory test that we have to do when we wear our regulatory hat but Ultimately, the money is coming from a whole separate group yes. of people that we don't control or influence. There's the intermediaries called the investment banks or the brokers who are the gatekeepers to that capital. Okay. And so in many cases, they're the ones that are having to deliver the really tough news. But we try to be filters. But how, how do they, like un, under what... Um circumstances would they say no i mean if you're if you're like look i want to maybe not a billion dollars for a factory no. but the guy could just keep coming back to you until he gets a number where you're like yeah okay 10 yeah. million seems like a so, good number so uh, the brokers and the investment banks do a really good job of understanding what 
their investors are looking for. Got it. They're the intermediaries. So if I go to a broker or an investment bank with this idea, this great company called me, I think they want to raise this, the bank or broker will look at that and say, you know what, I think you're right. Right. I know the 20 investors that I will go to. Mm. Each of those investors will write a $100,000 check. Therefore, we're all set. Here's our two million bucks. Right. Or they'll look at it and go, there's no way I can sell this. I love the management team. Mm-hmm. I think they're doing some great things. But for these five reasons, it's not ready right. for our investor class. Okay. So it, it does, in a, in a sense, it mimics what would happen in the yeah. public market just on a smaller scale. It does. Really. And, or, and also on a more uh, spread out scale in some instances because... In the private venture capital market, the decision is being driven by one or two VCs, Mm -hmm. right? They're the ones that ultimately write you the check. They're the ones that then drive things. In this instance, you are relying a little bit more on the crowd in the sense that that broker isn't just talking to one investor. That broker is talking to two or 300 of his or her investors trying to raise the money. So take me back to the conversation we had before, like, uh, there is a, you know, startups, especially in the tech ecosystem, they tend to look at what's going on in, in San Francisco. And then we we in other countries and other cities try to copy that. Oh, well, the Silicon Valley is focusing on AI. Everything's AI this year. Next year's VR. So uh, the trend uh, over the last few years has been to not go public for even the large ones that like Uber could have gone public a million times between now and a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, and they're choosing not to. Are you finding that um, uh, companies you're talking to are look in there and they're like, uh, they're not going public, so we shouldn't go public. Is that just a, a trend? Um, it depends. So if you look in aggregate at the total number of tech companies that went public on our two exchanges last year, record year for us. Right. More tech companies went public in 2016 hmm. than we've ever seen. Hmm. You scratch your head and you go, hang on, hang on, who are they? Mm-hmm. Can you name three of them? Can you name five of them? Probably not. Some people hopefully can, but of the 41 tech companies to go public on TSX or TSX Venture last year, 36 of them, so the vast, vast, vast majority, were going on our small cap exchange. So you don't hear about it, Mm. but it's happening actually more than it's ever happened before in Canada. The ones that get the headlines are the companies like Shopify, as we talked about, because of their profile and stage. And those are the ones, as I alluded to earlier, that are typically waiting longer than they used to wait. I see. And so we will see some more of those over the coming years, I know, but we're not going to see that sort of torrid pace. And what do you think is the the driver to keep them that way? Is it control? Yeah, to stay private. Is it control? They want... They want to get a, a pattern of recurring revenue yeah. that they can go public with. They part want of, a higher valuation. Part of it's readiness, and they're just not comfortable that they're ready. Part of it's the fact that they can get all the capital they need from the private investors right now. Right. And so if there's no urgency or pressure on behalf of their current investor class mm-hmm. to have the liquidity event, they're not feeling compelled to do it, mm-hmm. which I'm fine with. Uh, it's about making sure that when they're ready and when that event is going to happen, that they're prepared. Mm-hmm. If you look at the biggest companies in the world, in any sector, they're typically public. So we know that at some point, that's where they're going to be. That's good, how they're going to get. Not certain, but there's a pretty good chance of that. Right. So it's more a matter of making sure when they get there, they're ready. Yeah. And so do you, you know, there's also something that drives me a little batty, but there is this sort of, you know, self-flagellation thing in Canada where we're like, 
oh my God, company X got bought instead of going public. Yeah. Um, and we need to think bigger and, and have companies go public. And what I find is interesting is, you know, you look at a company like Tumblr that sold to Yahoo for a billion dollars. Um, and that's in America, that's considered success. In yeah. Canada, it's like, why'd you sell? Yeah. Why, why didn't you go public? Um, do you do you sort of share that sort of, guys, like, come on, go public, build a company that lasts? Yeah, very much so, right? We want, as I think most proud Canadians do and members of the tech ecosystem in Canada, we want to see some great companies in this country build up in this country, hire a lot of people in this country, and be massively successful. And there's several paths to getting there, but one clear path that won't get you there is selling when you're worth 10 million bucks. Right. Uh, and I, I get it, like I really do. If I've started up a company and someone offers me a $10 million check to walk away, it's a lot of money, mm -hmm. I get it. Mm -hmm. But it takes real confidence in your business and a bit of boldness, which some Canadians don't have, to say no to that $10 million offer, and a year later to say no to the $50 million offer, and a year later to say no to the $200 million offer as you're scaling. And you look at some of our big entrepreneurs now and our big tech leaders now, They've got a little bit more of that confidence and maybe even arrogance, which we should be proud of, not not dismissing or, or criticizing. And they're saying, no, we're not going to sell. We're going to build up companies to be great in Canada. That's really exciting. And I think we should all be uh, uh, encouraging that. But they have to recognize that the path to getting there is going to take um, some patience and certainly some more creative thinking necessarily than just defaulting to the old path of you know, venture fund and then sell to Apple, Google, Facebook, whoever buys right. them. Yeah. Africa, Bogo, whatever the yeah, acronym yeah, is. Yeah. So do you, like, it's kind of telling that your your role specifically is focused on tech. Yeah. So it implies there are people who are focused on there not are. tech. There are. Uh, but you're, there's enough for you to do to focus just on tech. Yeah. Um, is that is that telling in some way? I mean, it is telling, but what does that, uh, is that, does that, what does the future hold then? Is that is that uh, saying that, okay, Canadians are really um, sort of doubling down in the technology sector and so it requires a diligent focus on technology because it's yeah. a, a path to our future society's kind of success? I, I think so. We've seen in the last five years a very significant shift in Canada, in the Canadian capital markets, in the Canadian economy more generally. Uh, from our narrow lens, very simple metrics, you know, five years ago, the mining and energy sectors represented almost half of the value of companies listed on our exchange. Today, they're about 20%. That's a big shift. In that time, the value of the exchange has actually gone up. So while there has been this decline in resources, something else has clearly made up mm -hmm. the difference. Mm -hmm. And guess what? One of the big areas to have made up part of that difference has been tech. And that's just through our narrow lens of looking at things. Look at things more holistically across the country. We're seeing, as I'm sure all your listeners know, some fantastic tech companies being incubated through the regional incubators across the country. Record levels of venture funding going on to support them. As I said earlier, record levels of public venture funding from our market to support those later companies. And some really good exits. All of that is pointed to what we see as this very significant shift in our country. Mm -hmm. As the stock exchange in the country, we have to be playing a role in this. And so this isn't just my focus. It is focus of a big team that we have. Uh, we've got myself leading the strategy and the overall objectives, but we've got five or six people regionally around the world talking to entrepreneurs about tech. 
It's also interesting that if you look at the core priorities that have been set out by our board of directors, so truly at that most senior level, diversifying and building our tech practice is very much one of those core objectives as well. So all of this is kind of very goal congruent with the national initiatives of our current government and so on around diversifying and innovation and all that stuff. Um, it's important. It's important for Canada. It's important for us. It's important for investors. It's just important, plain and simple. Yeah, I don't think anyone listening to this show will disagree with you on that not. one. Uh, well, maybe that one guy. He's terrible. Um, uh, I'm talking to you. Uh, no, so uh, you, you you just uh, mentioned this on, in the in that arc where uh, you've got a team that's that's out around the world. Yeah. Are they they're scouting tech companies to go public on the on the TSX? Yeah. And it doesn't matter if they're in Israel or China, that's okay. That's absolutely okay. So we've had in the last few years, companies from Israel and from Asia, from Europe, and from of course the US go public with us uh, on both our big exchange, TSX, and on TSX Venture Exchange. Mm -hmm. There is no requirement that those companies have a head office in Canada. There's no requirement that they have a management team here. There's no requirement that they do business here. They look to our market as a fantastic gateway to North American capital, Canadian and US. They look to our market as one of the few places in the world, possibly the only place where smaller cap companies can successfully be incubated and grow. Uh, and they look to our market as one that's now seen such an uptick in interest around tech that there's actually a chance to truly build a great company out of what we offer here. So it's not just simply I don't want to go public on the Nasdaq no. just yet. I actually uh, this is the second, you know, or the second like biggest or whatever. Yeah. What what is that? You said it was one of the biggest in the world. Do you know? Yeah, like third. Yeah. Third, so, third. so we're the third biggest country in the world. So I, I talked about the um, the sort of rankings uh, when you look at capital raised. China raises more. The U.S. raises more than Canada's third. third. Wow, that's good. amazing it given is. the population of Canada. Yeah, yeah, we do really well. We're pretty good. So. Uh, uh, it's not just, well, I'm not ready to go on the NASDAQ. I'm not ready to go on the, what? what is the biggest? Is it in the UK? What, what is the, uh, in, uh, in Asia? In Asia, it's sort of a combination of the Hong Kong, Shanghai, and Shenzhen exchanges. Okay, okay. Yeah, so, so uh, you, there are other considerations other yeah. than size about choosing to come go public on the TSX. It is, yeah, for sure. Frankly, when any company picks where they're going to go public, they're looking at a whole host of things. But most important things are where are they going to get profile, where are they going to get investors, where are they going to get liquidity. Mm -hmm. And size drives a lot of those decisions. But the broader ecosystem is a key driver as well. Mm -hmm. So we've got this really special ecosystem in Canada that supports earlier stage companies and that allows them to thrive and grow. Uh, it's cheaper, that helps. Mm -hmm. It's a more friendly regulatory environment than some of those other regions we talked about. That helps. We have crazy things like the startup visa, we, which encourages Im immigrants to come and start companies here sure. and or get talent. Yeah, broader government policies, programs, mm -hmm. those things all help. And so a combination of those different things might drive a company from Israel or from Silicon Valley or from wherever else to look to our market and say, this is kind of cool. I think we should fund our business through this platform rather than something else that we might have been looking at. That's interesting because you normally think of it as uh, you guys as an exit path yeah. for a company, but you're actually attracting attracting uh, investors and, and capital and people and technology yeah. and ideas to Canada independent of all that, which is not something you typically think of, I would it's imagine. A, no, but it's a really important distinction, right? Particularly for 
venture exchange, but also for TSX. But particularly for venture exchange, it's not an exit path. It's mm -hmm. absolutely a growth path. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely about acquiring capital, raising capital, not about allowing a couple of your founders to get out. And so when these companies are planning their five and 10 year strategies and thinking about the different intervals of capital that they're gonna need and so on, they have to evaluate their options against that. Right. So uh, as we wind up, I, we're almost out of time, I'm sorry to say. Um, how do you see growth happening in, in your team? Or, 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 I mean, yes, you've got people around the world. Do you find, do you think it'll be like, okay, the, the venture exchange will be something that's heavily pushed the TSX already has a brand and you just need to find other help other bigger companies uh, go public like how do you see yeah. it going for the next few years not knowing the future and yeah. one of the big <laughs> things we're trying to do much more now is tell the stories of successes and and just tell the stories period and the reason that's so important is I could spend 30 minutes as we've done here talking to you about how fascinating this model is and how great it is but until you've heard it from someone who's used it it's just words and right. we know that and so we're spending a lot more time telling this customer stories and when you hear the experiences of a company like TO or companies uh, like truly the hundreds and hundreds that every year use our market to grow it captures the imagination of what's possible we've got currently three unicorns that have been funded through TSX Venture Exchange. Hmm. We've got about 40 centaurs, is that the new yeah, word for a $100 million company? Yeah. Um, would that have been funded through the TSX Venture Exchange? And so just with those 40 or 45 companies, you've got real successes, real examples of companies that have truly grown to being big businesses by using this public venture market. Mm -hmm. We've got to tell that story a lot more and get founders and executives thinking about this. One of my biggest pet peeves, I spend a ton of time talking to startups around Canada and the US. One of my biggest pet peeves is the narrow-minded approach that some of them take to looking at their funding. Mm -hmm. And I think we talked about this sort of at the beginning of the, the chat here. There is no single funding option that's right for every single company. Mm -hmm. There is absolutely a case where you should only take VC. And there's absolutely a case when you should only bootstrap. And there's absolutely a case where you should look at option C, D, and E on that list. I think it's incumbent on every founder to be exploring all of those options and not just default to what their friends did or whatever it is. Certainly in Canada, we're so lucky, or founders are fortunate, that they've got this public venture market at their doorstep. It's something they can explore so bloody easily. And so as you're talking about you know, what the future is here, we want to make sure that founders are learning that story, hearing the examples, evaluating it fairly, and maybe deciding it's wrong for them, but certainly making the decision. It's a ch choice yeah. as opposed to, you know, go get debt or go get venture money. And those are my choices. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And uh, gosh, it can do some really good things when it's used properly by the right companies and the successes speak for themselves. So we're going to be telling that story a lot more over the coming years. That's cool. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So thank you very much for coming on the show. If people want to check out the TSS, TSX, I think they know where to go, but you can tell them anyway, and the Venture Exchange, how do they figure find out about yeah, these Yeah, so easy, tsx.com um, is where you can get all kinds of information, including my contact details for anyone who wants to talk to me, or follow us on Twitter, at TSX underscore TSXV. Cool. Thanks very much, Michael, for coming on the show. Um, uh, thank you to Nick Kuhn for producing it. Thank you for TWG for hosting us. Stay tuned for a new episode next week. And uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Great. Thanks a lot. Thanks.